This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Health Communism by Beatrice Adler-Balton and Artie Vierkant. In this fiery theoretical tour de force, co-hosts of the hit Death Panel podcast and longtime disability justice and healthcare activists Beatrice Adler-Balton and Artie Vierkant offer an overview of life and death under capitalism and argue for a new global left politics aimed at severing the ties between capital and one of its primary tools, health. Health communism examines how capital has instrumentalized illness, disability, and madness to create a class seen as surplus, regarded as a fiscal and social burden. Demarcating the healthy from the surplus, the worker from the unfit to work, the authors argue, serves not only to undermine solidarity, but to mark whole populations for extraction by the industries that have emerged to manage and contain this surplus population. Health Communism by Beatrice Adler-Balton and Artie Verkant, out now from Verso Books and available at versobooks.com. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This episode is the final of my two-part interview with historian Tim Barker on monetary politics. We pick up where we left off last week and discuss quite a lot. The debate over whether loose and unconventional monetary policy caused inflation in the price of assets like stocks and housing what sort of light the current economic situation sheds on Marxist accounts of a so-called long downturn in capitalism, and how the Fed's interest rate hikes are pushing poor indebted countries into debt crisis, and many, many other topics, too. I recommend that you listen to part one of this interview if you have not done so already, and that you also listen to my July 2021 interview with Tim if you want more of a general primer on inflation and the politics surrounding it. Before we get rolling, this here is the last dig of 2022. And next week, the first week of 2023, I will be posting a rerun. We've been going strong for six years, from me having absolutely no clue what I was doing, or if anyone at all would listen to this thing, to me doing this for a living, and having an amazing audience of dedicated listeners, many of you doing incredible organizing work in the U.S. and all around the world, in labor unions, tenant unions, environmental campaigns, state legislatures, and more. I can't express how grateful I am to have the attention of such remarkable people for some really, really lengthy weekly episodes. If I could, I'd just travel around the country meeting all of you. And maybe at some point I can figure out a way to do that without doing live shows because I don't love doing live shows, to be honest. But I would really like to go on some sort of tour at some point because I really love meeting listeners. Anyhow, it is listeners just like you who make this podcast possible by contributing financially at patreon.com slash the dig. We do have swag to send you in the mail if you contribute at least $10 a month. Books, mugs, tote bags. But why you should really contribute is is because that's what makes the show possible. Please contribute what feels right. That's p a t r e o n.com/the dig. 
What's more, a contribution of any amount at all gets you our weekly newsletter emailed to your inbox. If you haven't read the newsletter yet, do check it out. They're all available for free at thedigradio.com alongside our vast archive of well over 300 episodes. Anyhow, thank you very much for listening. I really do appreciate you all making the podcast possible. It's been amazing, and I hope will continue to be so. All right, here's part two of my two-part interview with Tim Barker, who completed a PhD on the history of military Keynesianism in May 2022. He is currently working as a writer and researcher in New York. His essays and articles have appeared in publications including N Plus One, Phenomenal World, Descent, and Jacobin. A wide range of scholars and observers have cited the Fed's low interest rates and quantitative easing programs as encouraging what's known as asset price inflation, which refers to the skyrocketing prices of everything from stocks to cryptocurrency to, most damagingly, housing. We can stipulate that tight money is disastrous for workers, and in terms of housing, that the Fed raising interest rates will do nothing because builders will not build many homes at all in a higher interest rate environment. We both agree on all that. But are we still being forced to choose between bad and less bad options? Did low interest rates and maybe particularly unconventional monetary policy generate their own cruel perversities, even though high interest rates would be far worse? Perversities that hypothetically might be avoidable were we to have the political power to implement progressive fiscal policy instead of relying on central bankers to handle pretty much everything. Power which, of course, and unfortunately, we certainly do not have. Yeah, that's a really interesting question, I think, one that people on the left are thinking a lot about these days. Um, Maybe I can start by just trying to present the case that asset price inflation is a problem and that it's linked to interest rate policy and quantitative easing. So the basic idea there is that whereas in the past, uh, easy money would have led to a sort of economic expansion in the so-called real economy, an expansion of output and employment, maybe tight labor markets, you know, with corresponding benefits to workers or from the point of view of capital with the corresponding danger of a sort of wage-based inflation. Today, the situation is different. And what easy money actually does is just provide a lot of cheap or even almost free money and credit to people who want to essentially speculate on financial markets, whether that means borrowing money to buy and sell, you know, stocks, bonds, derivatives, other kind of financial instruments, or to buy houses, right? And so the idea is that whatever is sort of gained from, you know, the employment consequences of low interest rates is maybe counterbalanced by a sort of corresponding uh, increase in the prices of assets, uh, which you can describe kind of by analogy as inflation, right? Because it is a price which is going up and it's a price which, you know, in this account has some connection to monetary policy. Now, I think that that account, it has a lot to do with the sort of reality that we see every day. You know, I mean, anyone, even like very wealthy people who've thought about buying houses recently have, you know, found that it's become really prohibitively expensive, On the other hand, anyone with even $1,000 in the stock market has seen pretty dramatic gains there. But despite that kind of surface possibility, I have a couple 
qualifications or, you know, maybe more strongly objections I'd make to the asset price inflation story. And so I'd like to walk through those now. Um, it might help to break down what we mean by assets, right? Because it's a pretty broad category of things uh, that here includes uh, houses, right? And also financial instruments and even, you know, stuff like crypto. So when we think about houses, it does seem clear that the demand for housing is related to the availability of mortgage financing, People will buy more houses if mortgage lending is happening at a low interest rate. And we also know that rates are linked pretty closely to movements in the Fed's policy rate. So there, it does seem to be the case that, you know, the sort of effective demand for housing can be uh, increased by a policy of low interest rates. But in a way, I think the housing thing is more similar to some of the sort of supply-based versus demand-based explanations we were talking about in the first part of this interview. Because if there's any sector where it's pretty clear that there's a problem of, you know, sort of objective undersupply of a commodity that people want, it's housing, right? We know that we're not building enough houses, that there was a big collapse in home building after the 2008 crash, uh, which, you know, we've basically never fully recovered from. And so, if you had to choose a kind of demand-based versus supply-based explanation for why housing prices have gone up so much, I think it's natural to start from the point of view of supply and that we should think about how to increase the supply of housing rather than to reduce the demand for it. But I think that uh, there's also an opportunity here to think about more creative uses of the central bank itself, right? The Fed also has a wide range of uh, regulatory tools to use in regulating finance. And so, uh, for instance, at different points in Fed history, they've issued qualitative controls on the availability of credit, right? So what that means is not just saying we want there to be less credit in general, we're going to raise interest rates. They say we actually want to restrict certain kinds of borrowing for certain purposes. So you could imagine, in theory, a kind of qualitative control um, over the availability of mortgage financing to buy a second house or a vacation house, right? Or a house that's worth more than a million dollars or something? I don't know. Sure. Yeah, you could say that you could say that for um, for reasons of, you know, preventing bubbles and promoting financial stability, which is part of the Fed's legal mandate, a house whose price has, you know, gone up X percent in the last two years is ineligible, you know, for this kind of thing under some kind of qualitative restriction on mortgage lending. So I think to the extent that we want to look to the Fed to solve this problem, it would be interesting to start talking about what they can do besides raising rates. But then there's a separate conversation, which is that the Fed basically whatever it does is not going to solve the housing problem and that we need some combination of market-based things. But frankly, the market by itself won't provide the housing that many, many people need. And so I think basically focusing on, on monetary policy as the culprit here is a, in a way a way of letting capitalism itself off the hook. You know, Basically, there's no interest rate environment in which capitalism will provide all of you know this basic social need called housing and it's maybe a little bit of a distraction to blame easy money for this problem when it's really, I think, a more fundamental thing about a, a system in which we create housing based on profit expectations. What about the stock market then? There's a widespread sense not only on, on the left, but I think including in many mainstream accounts that the Fed was sort of fueling a Wall Street rager with an unlimited supply of uppers. And now that the party has been, been cut off, that uh, a lot of tech stocks in general and crypto companies in particular are coming crashing back down to earth. Yeah. So, you know, the reason I wanted to sort of carve out housing from equities like stocks and bonds is that they represent kind of different kinds of 
assets that people buy for different reasons. And I think that it actually is worth thinking about like what a stock, what a share of a publicly traded company is. It's a claim on some amount of the company's earnings over the future, right? Um, which you'll get in the form of dividends. And so there's a relationship between the, the prices people pay in the stock market and what's actually happening with the company in terms of earnings. It's not always a sort of tight one-to-one link. If you look at a graph of the ratio of the stock market index versus earnings, you'll see that prices are always some multiple of earnings, and that goes up and down. So it's not always a one-to-one link. But there is, I think, maybe less of a total disconnect between the stock market and the quote-unquote real economy than people think. And I think that actually makes sense if you think about it from a leftist or a Marxist point of view, right? In the last episode, we talked about the railway strike, right? And the basic sort of issue behind the railway strike is that activist shareholders have bought the railroads or bought controlling interest in the railroads and imposed an anti-labor program on the railway management in an attempt to increase profits. And so ask yourself, why is it that an activist shareholder like Warren Buffett or Bill Ackman is doing this? It's because as an owner of a a claim to the income produced by the company, he actually has an interest in increasing the earnings and increasing the profits. Uh, And so if we think that, you know, over the course of neoliberalism, capitalists have gotten successful at increasing the profit share and increasing their earnings, we actually should expect stocks to become attractive to buy. And in a way, I think blaming the Federal Reserve and easy money for the increase in stock prices is in a weird way to overlook the fact that ownership is now very attractive because of how badly workers are treated. It's to engage, I think, in a kind of monetary fetishism where we see the stock market boom as completely unrelated to anything except an error in monetary policy, when in fact, I think, as Marxists, we should think that there's usually something else, some other social relation going on underlying a monetary phenomenon, right? And in this case, when you look at the companies that did really well during the, you know, the stock market boom in the first couple of years of the pandemic, in many cases, they were companies that were either seeing huge earnings growth or expecting to see huge earnings growth. So in some ways, like the flip side to the corporate profits that we were talking about earlier is the stock market boom. Now, is that to say that there's no connection between monetary policy and performance on the stock market? I think that would be in an untenable position to maintain. And I think we see it especially now with the fact that raising interest rates will reduce the attractiveness, especially of speculative assets like cryptocurrency, right? So you sort of, you do see when money tightens that there's a reduced risk appetite in a lot of cases. But I think when you look at history, you actually see that you can still have pretty wild, insane financial stuff going on in an atmosphere of tight money. There's a case from the early 1980s, which actually comes up in some recent pieces about inflation. And it's the failure of a bank called Penn Square in Oklahoma, which was an energy bank. Penn Square, its bank failure uh, is used as an example of sort of the dangers of easy money. But if you actually look at the history, almost all of the bad lending the Penn Square did happened after the Volcker shock, happened after late 1979. And this is true also if you look at a lot of the lending to Latin American countries that happened and blew up the same year in 1982. And what really happened there was that people were so certain that these things would be profitable, right? On the one hand, oil production, because people thought oil prices would go up forever, even after the Volcker shock. Uh, on the other hand, the attractiveness of investing in these Latin American countries, because people thought that countries couldn't go broke. I think what you actually learn from looking at that Volcker period is that even extremely high interest rates are not enough to prevent speculation and bubbles if the profit expectations are there. So I would just caution people away from reducing this to a problem of monetary policy at the expense of looking at what are the actual investments that are being made and why do people think they're profitable. And so right now then, or not right now, but in the period before right now, what does account 
for the stock market boom that that we experienced. Haven't price to earnings ratios, the difference between a stock market price and a company's earnings. Haven't those PE ratios for for tech stocks and for companies like Tesla in particular been unusually pretty nuts? Yeah, I mean, as again, it's always it's a little bit like when we're talking about the consumer price index, right? When you're looking at a a measure of the prices in the entire stock market, you're always looking at some kind of an index, you know, like the S and P 500, and any aggregate like that will cover up particular cases. And so I think the the price earnings ratio has not gotten to the levels it did in the late 90s at sort of the height of the dot com bubble, but it's it's certainly elevated looking at the long historical trend. And I think if you look at specific stocks like Tesla, I think it's obviously, or I mean, an even purer example would be like uh, GameStop, right? Or some of the pure meme, meme stocks. There are elements of speculation, irrational exuberance. You know, there's a kind of a boom psychology when people think everything will go up forever. And it does seem to me you can see that in a lot of individual stocks. We should also pause to unpack the difference between central bank interest rate policy, which is what we've most explicitly discussed so far, in this broader suite of monetary policy, notably what, since the 2008 crash, has been called unconventional monetary policy. What What is all this non-interest rate monetary policy, and what makes it unconventional? Right. So the, you know, the unconventional monetary policy is a another way of referring to what's been called quantitative easing. And this is essentially the Fed trying to increase the liquidity of the market for money and credit through direct purchases of assets, right? The sort of like very, very large scale and sustained purchases of assets that they've done. Originally, it was just purchasing government debt from private entities, right? So a bank would own government debt and the Fed would take it off their books in exchange for money, which the Fed can create. And so the the idea behind that was that there's a sort of trap once interest rates have hit zero, Right. You lower interest rates to try to stimulate the economy. But once you hit zero, there's something called the zero lower bound and you can't make it less than zero. So after 2008, the Fed was concerned that the economy still wasn't recovering despite interest rates hitting zero. And quantitative easing, which had really actually been pioneered by the Japanese central bank during the the so-called lost decade that Japan had gone through in the 90s. Quantitative easing or unconventional monetary policy is a way to try to keep increasing liquidity in the system even after interest rates have hit zero. And so, as I said, that started out with purchases of just you know government debt, but it's widened since then uh, during the 2020 financial market disruption near the beginning of the pandemic in March 2020. The Fed bought a couple, I think ultimately around $14 billion of uh, corporate debt on the secondary market, which was a new thing for them to buy that instead of buying government debt. And so in that case, they not only made the system more liquid, but they kind of indicated that they wouldn't allow the secondary market for corporate debt to fall apart, which then encouraged private lenders to keep lending to corporate borrowers. So they sort of, they've widened the suite of tools they've used as they realize that they don't have a lot of room to cut interest rates. One reason that the Fed is kind of keen to increase interest rates now is because they actually they would like to have more flexibility with interest rate policy, right? I think sometimes you read about this and there's an idea that they've embraced, you know, this permanent zero interest rate policy, either as a favor to particular companies or because, you know, the whole system is so weak that they need it. And while that last part may or may not be true, we'll kind of see that in the years to come. It's really the case that the Fed has been eager to raise rates because that would give them more room to kind of play with the policy rate, right? They don't love to have to resort to this um you know, uh, bazooka of, of cash purchases, they would actually rather have room to cut the rate. And that's one reason they're eager to sort of get back to what they would consider normal now. 
Returning to the to the question of asset price inflation, is it fair to say, perhaps, that expansionary monetary policy seems to be a necessary but insufficient condition for recent years' asset price inflation, with both of us stipulating that tighter monetary policy would not be better? <laughs> Do you agree? And if so, specifically what conditions beyond expansionary monetary policy have, have been critical to asset price inflation, maybe particularly stocks? I really, I like the way you asked the question, Dan, because it sort of gets us back to discussions we had in the first episode about different ways of explaining inflation. And, and back then we said that, you know, some people think that the mere existence of an increase in the money supply is, is inflationary. And some people stress that it's actually the money has to be spent for inflation to happen. I think it seems clear that there's some level of monetary tightening you could do, which would, you know, crash the stock market. So at the very least, that has to be true. If that's true, that there's some level of tight money that could crash the economy, why is that? Like, what's the mechanism through which that's working? And one mechanism through which that would be working would be to depress demand, which would cause all other kinds of problems in the economy, which is why, as you say, I think, you know, the two of us agree that that would be a cure worse than the disease. So given that the money supply by itself or the supply of money and credit by itself is not enough to account for a run-up in asset prices, what else is going on? You know, with housing, it's pretty clear not only that supply was restricted, but that because of various things about work from home, demand was increasing at the same time. And so that explains a lot of what was going on in conjunction with, you know, the, the availability of cheap mortgage financing in the last couple of years. With the stock market, you know, I think people really believe in these tech stocks in a way that is not really rational. And I think, you know, crypto provided a an unusually concentrated example of this, where we've probably all met crypto enthusiasts, or at least, you know, people who are crypto curious, who think there's something big that will change because of crypto. I might not be able to explain to you what it is right now, you know, but someone smarter than me, someone with more inside information than me has figured out that crypto is going to be a game changer. And so that's really just a psychological expectation. I think there's some version of that too, probably with, you know, some of the big tech stocks, right? Like Facebook, um, Apple, Google, Netflix, an idea that, you know, whether or not it's showing up in the earnings right now, these things are completely game changers. I mean, Uber like is another great example of that, right, where they struggle to show a profit, but people think they must be just around the corner from having self-driving cars. So there's some degree of just expectations, right, what Keynes would call animal spirits about the future in the context of a whole, you know, culture-wide celebration of tech, which has, you know, been enthusiastically promoted by politicians across the political spectrum. What's happened to tech prices recently is probably some correction against that uh, exuberance. But I, I would like to, you know, just reiterate that we've also seen like very strong corporate earnings. You know, it's the flip side of the high corporate profits. And so, you know, to some extent, owning a company uh, or owning a right to a part of the income produced by the company in the future becomes more attractive when workers are weak and capital is strong, right? Um, the stock market is really a market in the financial returns produced by non-financial corporations. You could also see the stock market decline uh, if if earnings went down because profits were being squeezed by wages. And so, I, I without you know without denying that there is ever irrationality in the stock market, which is you know clearly something that no one who's read any history could ever deny. Um, 
I would encourage people to try to think about how these things are connected to economy-wide developments, you know, in particular, just the, the, the very strong earnings that result from companies which, you know, they're facing a disempowered working class. In many cases, they have the market power to set prices, you know, wherever they want. Again, think about the tech companies like Apple. Apple's pricing decisions on the iPod are to a large degree, decisions that they make, right, about how much to charge. They're not decisions forced on it, you know, sort of impersonally by the market. So they've got a disempowered working class. They've got, in many cases, you know, power um, over prices to some degree. And so in that case, owning a share of Apple becomes, like, pretty attractive. Uh, is it possible for it to go too far? Uh, I think, you know, that's clearly true. It's happening now. And I guess my, you know, if we had here on the program someone who's, you know, more sort of more gung-ho about the asset price inflation idea, I would like to ask them how they explain the Fed's recent tightening policy, right? Because you read some of these things and there's an idea that there's an increase in asset prices that happens at the same time as, as easy money policy, and that that almost constitutes a kind of transfer from the Fed you know, to its rich cronies. But if that's the case, then you would have to actually now say that the Fed is destroying billions of dollars of wealth. The idea that they're single-mindedly devoted to this is also sort of simplifies the Fed's relative autonomy, where they actually they have a genuine interest in what they perceive as the stability of the economy. And so the Fed actually will act to limit uh, destabilizing influences as best it can, you know, under these sort of contradictory imperatives that it faces. Radhika Desai makes a historical case around this question in, in NLR. She argues that the Fed is deeply complicit in both the long-term disinvestment in manufacturing on the one hand and shift towards finance and propping up asset inflation on the other. Alan Greenspan hiking rates in the late 80s, she writes, quote, extinguished the nascent manufacturing revival. And then she continues, quote, when Greenspan eventually decided to loosen monetary policy, it was not to support the expansion of production and employment, but to inflate asset bubbles, starting with the so-called Greenspan put, an injection of liquidity into the financial system in response to the stock market crash of 1987. This policy, which was continued by Greenspan's successors, such that it became known as the Federal Reserve put, generated speculative bonanzas for the rapidly deregulating financial sector and provided generous liquidity after each inevitable crash. What's your take on on this timeline and the role that Desai says that the Fed has played in first abetting the deepening of post-Volker shock deindustrialization and then backstopping this periodic bout of asset inflation with what is known to her and others as the Greenspan or Federal Reserve put? So I think it's it's obviously true that the Federal Reserve has embraced most of the phenomena that we would describe as financialization. And this starts actually even before the 1970s, the Federal Reserve becomes enthusiastic about the creation of new kinds of financial instruments, which represent a sort of way to to work around and ultimately undo the financial regulations that had been created during the 1930s. So we see that at the very latest in the 1960s and, and maybe even earlier, um, the Federal Reserve embracing things like the euro dollar market, um, the negotiable certificate of deposit or CD, uh, the revival of commercial paper, which is a you know another form of short-term debt. And they they embrace it for a couple of reasons. You know, I think part of the story is that the financial reserve is just structurally extremely close. To finance. And so while it's definitely not true that they never do anything that, that doesn't upset the financial sector, 
it does work as a kind of rough and ready assumption that the Federal Reserve will help finance get what it wants. But there are also these sort of broader reasons, which is, you know, the Fed decided that it wanted to take a broader role in governing the macro economy and that the way that they would do this was sort of encouraging financial innovation because a sort of more active financial system would transmit the effects of monetary policy to the whole economy. And so they saw it as a way of making their policies more effective. They also recognized, again, from quite early on, that doing this would create new risks of financial instability, right? There's there's often a sort of tale that's told where, you know, Greenspan uh, in particular was such a free market ideologue that he didn't really see this at all until after 2008, and then he kind of made an act of contrition. Uh, but from the 1960s on, people at the Fed are very aware that this financialization that they're uh, helping to bring into birth will increase the risk of financial crisis. And so at the same time that they're indulging or encouraging this sort of private innovation and in kinds of financial activity, they're also practicing and preparing new forms of crisis mitigation, right? New forms of firefighting, because they know that even if this works, you know, 99% of the time, they know that there's going to be moments which come with increasing frequency in the 70s and 80s, including that there's this big 1987 downturn in the stock market when the stock market has its biggest one-day decline since 1929, I, th I think. Um, and that's right at the beginning of the Greenspan era. And so there is a context where the Fed realizes that the financialization it's been encouraging has led to new kinds of risks of sort of systemic financial crisis. And one, one response they have to that is to demonstrate to the markets that they are willing to do whatever it takes to prevent a liquidity crisis in the system, right? And so that that 1987 downturn is the backdrop to the what people call the Greenspan put. Within that history, I think there are important variations that maybe don't get enough attention in a in an account that stresses that this is all like one period, you know. So I just mentioned a 1987 stock market downturn and the Fed's, you know, very prompt response to that in terms of meeting liquidity needs. Um, but then, you know, don't forget that in 1994, Greenspan really destabilized financial markets by raising interest rates. And that brought on a, a Mexican, another Mexican debt crisis. Uh, it caused significant complications in U.S. financial markets. And so I think... If we're going to think about this historically, we need to both, you know, see the the, the big picture, the long term trends, which clearly I think is one of, of Fed support for financialization, but also the moments where these imperatives have come in, into conflict. Uh, and, and there's a second point I made, which is Greenspan in particular was not completely uninterested in the what we would call the real side of the economy. There's actually an interesting moment in the mid 90s when. Greenspan becomes more dovish on interest rate policy than the rest of the Fed. Most of the Fed, including Janet Yellen, who was at the time on the on the board, think that uh, interest rates can't go any lower because unemployment is already as low as it can go. Uh, but at that moment, Greenspan thinks interest rates can go even lower and that unemployment can grow even lower. And Greenspan thinks this for two reasons. One is the sort of familiar one that we've discussed on this show before. Uh, Greenspan thinks that workers have been disempowered. And so as a result, they won't be able to exploit you know, the low interest rates to increase their wages. But the second one is that Greenspan is actually a big believer in the sort of productivity miracle promised by um, tech stuff, you know, which is in the in retrospect was clearly overhyped. But there is a little, you know, upward tick in the productivity numbers in the late 90s. And Greenspan explicitly saw his accommodative policy as a way to sort of allow the economy to reap the benefits of the tech boom, which was not just a stock market boom, but actually saw, you know, an increase in the level of 
of non-residential fixed investment, of fixed business investment. So that's, you know, all just maybe a, a slightly wonky way of saying that within this headline about Fed support for financialization, there are both moments when the Fed does stuff that the financial markets don't like and moments when the Fed takes an interest in the productive possibilities of the, the so-called real economy. Is there some broader dynamic in history then around financialization in general, more so than tight or loose monetary policy in particular, both involving the Fed and not involving the Fed, that does help to explain asset price booms and bubbles? Yeah. And I actually, one thing I liked about the the Radica Decide piece and New Left Review that, that you've been referring to is that she actually says that the history of financialization should be thought of as a kind of plural history of different financializations, right, with an S, because there have been these different moments. Everyone knows that the 1980s was a big moment for financialization, and the 1980s were actually famously a period of high and volatile interest rates, right? It was a period no one could describe as one of easy money, and yet that very high interest rate policy actually led to a lot of capital from around the world getting sucked into the U.S. financial system. The volatility created a lot of opportunities you know, for people like bond traders who could speculate on what would happen to interest rates the next day, which are opportunities they wouldn't have had if you had just always had you know, a stable rate. And so at different moments in history, I think both high and low interest rates have been consistent and even conducive to, you know, some of these dynamics that we're calling financialization. And so you ask, is there a sort of, you know, what's the what's the constant through line behind these changing Federal Reserve policies? And again, I would want to point to, you know, the distribution of power in society between different groups, right? One thing that was true in the 80s and is true today is that people who hold financial claims to wealth are among the most powerful people in our society. And there's two parts of that, right? Uh, wealth itself has become more concentrated and the people, that small group of people who hold most of the wealth have become sort of ever more unchallenged as the masters of these really important economy-wide decisions about which investments get made and which ones don't, about what gets regulated and what gets don't. And so I would say that rather than getting hung up on, on easier hard money, we should think of you know, exactly along the lines that you're suggesting. What are the social relations uh, that were put into place in the 70s and 80s and that really remain in place today? You've written a forthcoming piece about Robert Brenner and, more broadly, analyses that follow his lead. Brenner's account is a major reference point for for many on the Marxist left. All across the board, people tend to lean on his analysis of what he calls the long downturn to explain the disappearance of manufacturing jobs, runaway speculative investments in financial assets, and all these various political morbidities that follow. His story, in, in short, is one of how overproduction and overcompetition in manufacturing capacity in the course of the 20th century has led to this major drag on the rate of profit in such industries, which in turn encourages capital to seek out productive investments elsewhere. And they also, like you and many others, argue that a lack of investment in productive capacity has contributed to this current price situation. And so here is where you you depart with Brenner and others. You You argue... These things contradict each other. You write, quote, The puzzle is that Brenner's analysis clearly focuses on excess supply, not supply constraints. And so, quote, The question presents itself. How can the problem be both overcapacity and undercapacity? Explain the argument and how Brenner attempts to square that circle. Yeah. So, I mean, let me just start by saying, you know, maybe especially for for people who aren't as inside the weeds on this stuff that Robert Brenner is in my book and 
the books of many other people, one of the greatest living historians and, and certainly one of the greatest Marxist historians who's ever written. You know, we're here talking about arguments he made in a book about the 20th century, but he really made his reputation writing about the origins of capitalism in the 15th, 16th century. So that kind of range by itself is, you know, a testament to his powers as a historian. With that said, you know, I think that not even in Brenner's own writings, but broader currents on the left, his story about the long downturn in the second half of the 20th century has become so authoritative that it's taken on some stylized qualities and people have sort of stopped thinking about the details of it or the logic of it themselves. It's become a kind of set piece. And I just, you know, wanted to sort of kick the tires on, on various aspects of it. And it struck me that the supply constraints of the last two years uh, were a good opportunity so just to repeat, you know, because the idea is a little complicated, Brenner's idea is that economy-wide stagnation since the 1970s can be explained by a falling rate of profit, and the falling rate of profit in turn can be explained by what he calls a kind of chronic overcapacity, which is the idea that there's too much productive capacity in the economy, which means naturally that people won't invest in new capacity, right? So if there's already a, an idle car factory sitting next to me, I'm not going to take the huge risk involved in spending, you know, billions of dollars to build a new car factory. But if I'm not investing, then the economy is not getting the boost that it would get uh, from new investment, and this causes a kind of problem. And I think it's it's crucial to note here that a big part of Brenner's argument is that this overcapacity is, is extremely persistent, has persisted over decades, because no economist would deny that there's a kind of cyclical aspect to investment where people get really caught up in an investment boom, they build a bunch of new factories, they discover that they've overshot demand, and they end up with excess capacity, and then they stop investing for a while. That kind of cyclical story about an investment overhang or an investment overshoot is actually a more familiar one. Mainstream economists think about it less than they should, but they wouldn't really deny the possibility of it. And other kind of left approaches, including that of um, Mihail Kaletsky, who we talked about in the first episode, also sort of take these dynamics of capacity to be central. So that is you know related to Brenner's concerns, but the really precise thing that Brenner is saying is that we have a kind of decades-long persistence of this overcapacity. And that's where I think there's an interesting question to ask about the last couple of years, um, you know, as as everyone who's listening to this knows, the problem in many cases has not exactly been insufficient supply, but inadequate supply, supply shortages. So sort of in a word, if the if the overcapacity thesis is about too much supply and not enough demand, it seems clear that a lot of the inflation over the last couple of years has been the result of the reverse situation. Now, I think there are a couple of responses that someone influenced by Brenner could make to this. One is that, you know, there is a kind of logical connection between a period of overinvestment followed by low investment and then a subsequent period of inadequate capacity. And I think that that's like a perfectly reasonable response, which, as I say, is consistent with a lot of other stories people tell about the economy. But if that's the case, then some of these sort of catchphrases that appear, not in Brenner's own writing, which I think have been more, much more careful on this, but in you know some people inspired by Brenner, that the world is kind of stuck in an ever-worsening spiral of overcapacity, that projection for the future might need to be modified, right? Another response you could make is that the supply shortages of the last two years have been temporary pandemic-related things, right? So it's true that we see undercapacity in shipping, or at least we did until recently. But, you know, the problem with that is pandemic disruptions in the U.S. and China and temporary increases in demand for durable goods. And so I think another coherent response someone could make is that the sort of full Brenner thesis will reemerge in its fullness again after the pandemic has passed. 
whether that's true or not becomes kind of an empirical question. We should actually start to look at specific sectors and see whether those supply constraints are just the result of the last few years or whether they're the result of like a longer term process. And I would tend to think that actually the underinvestment uh, and resulting lack of capacity has been a longer term process. And so I, I would not expect that after the pandemic, we'll see a return um, to kind of chronic overcapacity. Although we will see, I think, you know, if there's a deep enough recession, there will be plenty of factories lying idle. On this, on this point, I think all sides of the debate agree that if we see another period with substantial, even if temporary overcapacity, that will lead to less investment and a worsening of all these, these dynamics. A couple follow-ups. First, has there been stagnation and have we seen a falling rate of profit? So, you know, stagnation, I think, is a is a word that it might behoove us to define more precisely. And it's funny because I'm, you know, I'm not an economist, I'm a historian, i I really don't use quantitative methods very much in my own work. And so it's funny, you know, for myself to to hear myself kind of making the case for almost a kind of positivism. But I do think actually there are just cases where it's worth being precise about what we mean. And it is true that U.S. output growth and productivity growth has been lower in the last you know couple of decades than it was during the so-called golden age of capitalism. It's less clear to me that it's been lower if you look at the entire history of the U.S. economy, although it's also the case that economic statistics from the 19th century are, you know, possibly open to question. A a comparison that I think really sharpens the question is to look at the U.S. versus a country like Italy. If you look at Italy, GDP per capita, right, the, the sort of national income for every head is lower now than it was in the late 90s. Right. And so if you look at that chart for Italy, you actually see like a a flat line or even a declining line. If you look at that line for the United States, it's a line that is still going up, uh, however, sort of more slowly than it would have in the past. And so I think my my intervention here insofar as I have one is that we should think carefully about whether there is a political difference, an important economic difference between a country like Italy, which has seen, I think, literal stagnation, and a country like the United States, which has seen slowing growth relative to a couple of decades of really high growth. Oh, so you also asked about the rate of profit. And I think the first thing to say about it is that the rate of profit is a specific way of talking about what's happening to profits or profitability, right? There are different ways to answer the question, are businesses profitable? We were talking about how, by many measures, corporate profits are actually really high right now. And so that might raise a question for people who read Marxists, you know, who are saying that the the rate of profit is falling. How is it that profits are still high right now? And the answer to that is the rate of profit is a ratio between, you know, some measure of profits in absolute terms and some denominator. In theory, it's possible for the profit rate to fall even as profits rise because the thing that's in the denominator could be rising faster than the thing in the numerator. Um, So then I think the question is just, what measure of profits are we looking at and why are we looking at it, right? Because we don't really care about this in the abstract. We care about profitability as a signal of something that's going on in the economy, right? And so one reason you might care about profits is to know whether companies are going to invest. You might think that investment happens when people expect profits to be high and that looking at the profit you know, either the mass or the rate of profits will give you some insight into investment. You know, so the Brennerite perspective here would be that the rate of profit is low, and so investment is going to be low. Um, and that's a sort of like it has a predictive quality. I think another reason that Marxists in particular are interested in this is that, you know, Marxists have a lot riding on the collapse of capitalism, both because we've been predicting it for like 200 years and because we would like to see it happen. Um, you know, and I'm 
I'm a Marxist and a socialist. I would also like to see, you know, the end of capitalism, especially if it's transcended by democratic control of the production and distribution of wealth. Um, so Marxists have a have an interest in in showing that they haven't been crazy to even talk about this as a possibility um, for a long time. And the thing that I worry about is that there's an element of wish fulfillment involved in, you know, finding and constructing particular measures of profitability, which show that despite what you read in the business press, um, profitability is really low. I think we should at the very least take seriously, you know, the measures of profitability that are actually used by capitalists and according to which they're doing pretty well, even if we also have a critique of those categories and I think, a, you know, a healthy suspicion of the obvious, you know, propaganda and ideology that is contained in, in the business press. Is there a compelling story then, if maybe a different story, about capitalism taking a series of decisive historical turns since its so-called golden age, following the reindustrialization and industrialization of Europe and East Asia under the Cold War umbrella of U.S. military power? Right. And so, I mean, you know, a large part of Brenner's story in his book, The Economics of Global Turbulence, which is where he really lays out this idea about the long downturn, a large part of that story is a, just a historical narrative that I think is is told in, in really rich detail and which holds up, you know, which is that at the end of World War II in 1945, the U.S. accounted for like half of the industrial production in the entire world and an even bigger percentage of the industrial production in the capitalist world since, you know, the Soviet Union was a, also a leading industrial power. And over the decades after 1945, at a much more rapid rate than anyone predicted, countries like Japan and West Germany became industrial leaders, even in certain ways surpassing the U.S. on certain measures by the 1970s and 1980s. And U.S. industry started to feel a kind of global competition that it had never felt. That's a decades-long story, which you can still learn from reading Brenner, and I'd still recommend people interested in this read that. But then the question is sort of what happened after that. And I think that there's also a large degree of successful restructuring in U.S. capitalism. And of course, when I say successful, I mean from the perspective of capitalists, right? We know that, um, you know, workers uh, have really never recovered from what happened in 1979. That's, a you know, something you and I have talked about on here. It's a theme of nearly everything I write. But, you know, I think it's a mistake to conflate the well-being of workers with the health of capitalism. In fact, you might expect those things to often move in different directions. And so, you know, if you look at the steel industry, which actually shows that there was this new competition uh, on a global scale in steel, but that the response by the U.S. steel industry was to close down a lot of steel mills, like lay off a lot of workers, uh, and find a new niche in some of these, like, so-called mini mills, which are different than the old integrated mills, and which often work by melting down scrap steel and, like, working on a much more kind of lean and mean basis. And at least for a couple of decades, there was exactly the response you would expect to a temporary overcapacity, which was to shed the capacity that wasn't profitable anymore and find a new way of making profits. And so I think, you know, to some extent in the 80s and 90s and even after, you saw a restructuring of production and not just a total abandonment of it. I think then there's maybe even a third chapter in the story, which is with the entrance of China into the WTO in 2000, you see actually a really 
a sort of second really steep decline in the workforce employed in manufacturing, right? If you think of sort of the first wave of that happening with Volcker, there's another like cliff, you know, on the graph of manufacturing employment. And then you have, you know, in 2008, this really, really deep recession with a huge hit to aggregate demand, both in the U.S. and around the world. And then you do see, you know, by certain measures, a real stagnation in American manufacturing and industry. And I think a lot of the underinvestment whose consequences we're now seeing. And I think even if we think that, you know, capitalism never really solves its crises and in some ways is just kicking the can down the road, if the system has been kicking the can down the road since the 70s, I just think in some ways we need to take seriously that it's found a sort of a livable working order for itself, which we can't just dismiss as a temporary aberration, right? We need to think more seriously about the stability of capitalism, even if it remains possible. And, and maybe even there's good reason for thinking that um, some of the pathologies that have been overcome in the past will reassert themselves, you know, in the future. Sure. And to think of the, you know, perhaps the golden, so-called golden age of capitalism as more of the exception than the rule. Right. I mean, I think there's a, there's a, there's an assumption people have that capitalists like and need growth, right? And that once the growth stops, that's really bad for capitalists. But you think about capitalists just as people who, you know, receive income they don't work for, they could be, you know, actually happy with a a fairly stagnant system as long as it's stable and they keep getting the returns on their stocks and bonds. It's almost a hopeful assumption that once the dynamism leaves, you know, capitalism will be weak. But I think you can sort of imagine a, a high level stagnation in a context of highly unequal distribution of wealth and ownership, which could survive for a lot longer than most of us would like to imagine. And as you, indeed, you see this, I think, in the rest of the world, right? There's a kind of American exceptionalism in thinking that there has to be growth all the time. But, you know, Dan, you've you've studied Latin America and, you know, they've had lost decade, you know, after lost decade. Um, like there are lots of periods in which there's not a lot of growth, certainly not in manufacturing. And yet the elites there somehow find a way to hold on. So just to return to a perennial subject of this interview, where does the shift of investment from manufacturing to, say, financial speculation fit into the long downturn narrative? And what in what history do you think best explains that shift? So I think the I think the explanation in in Brenner has two parts. One of them is that as manufacturing became less profitable, people had to find other outlets to invest their money in if they wanted returns on them, and they found those returns in financial markets. I think the second part of the Brenner explanation for financialization is that it's been a sort of form of state support for a capitalism which otherwise would collapse. On the one hand, it's a response to the falling profits uh, by capitalists seeking returns on their money. On the other hand, he sees it as a kind of uh, conscious state strategy to prop up a dying system. And then just to put a bow on it, like what, what would you say a better account would be? It's sort of, there's a sort of natural process of economic development, at least under capitalism, in which manufacturing as a sector becomes less important over time because manufacturing becomes more efficient, right? So if we're thinking about the decline of the percentage of the workforce employed in manufacturing, that's actually a result of, you know, this capitalist investment becoming more productive. Uh, The productive process is shedding workers. And so, you know, you sort of would expect to see that to some degree. What's happened, though, is if you look at like where people work or even like where value added in the economy comes from, there's a sort of third piece of it that is left out by focusing just on either manufacturing or finance, which is uh, other kinds of services, right? And so I think 
there's an explanation of the of the decline in the relative status of manufacturing the economy, which can be better talked about in terms of the rise of these other services without necessarily talking about the rise of financialization. I think you have to explain further why you've had the rise of finance, which isn't really a natural process in the same way. And I think it is true that there was a lot of money to be made there, and that's why money went into that sector. That's certainly true. Again, I would say asking why there's money to be made there would lead us to answers that go beyond speculation. There's no doubt that a huge amount of our financial system is not just sort of a, a engine of inequality, but also a sort of completely socially unnecessary and even destructive system of casinos, you know, for rich people to to put their money in and for asset managers to take fees from rich people. But you know, if you think about the difference between the crypto crash that happened recently and the 2008 financial crisis, it also becomes clear that there's a difference between a sort of purely speculative market like crypto and one which is tied up with the workings of the real economy, right? Right. The crypto crash poses no systemic risk. It fucked over a lot of people who have been swindled, but did not pose any sort of economy-wide systemic risk. Exactly. And that's different from the kind of financial crisis we had in 2008. Um, and so then I think it's worth thinking about how is it that some speculative markets like crypto are not wrapped up in the sort of actual production and reproduction of our material life, and yet some of them are. Um, and I think from a political perspective, it would be good to try to think about what are the actual services that you know finance provides, which would become a problem if they cease to exist, and to try to think about how we could create public capacities for doing those things so that you could actually let the speculative part of the stock market crash without hurting people, right? Figure out what are the actual things that the economy needs from a financial system, which are currently provided by the private financial system in exchange for this, you know, protection from the government, um, figure out how to take away that kind of structural power. But a lot of the, you know, the increased value of financial ownership comes from the fact that the companies to which you're buying a share on the stock market have been profitable. And, um, even Brenner recognizes in his writing that companies actually have a lot of cash on hand, which they're not using for investment, but they're using to give back to their shareholders in the forms of dividends or stock buybacks. And so I think even if you really closely read Brenner, there's an acknowledgement that these companies actually are generating cash flows, which are enriching the people who own shares in their companies. And I think once you like fully internalize that insight, it becomes hard to think of this as just a pure speculative game. It actually is a way of buying a claim on wealth, which is produced by workers making goods or services somewhere in the economy. You know, if you own a share of Amazon and you get a dividend, from a Marxist perspective, you'd think that what you're getting is, an, is a part of the surplus value produced by Amazon workers. And that's a horrible thing, right, that we should not, like, think is good, but it's a different dynamic than sort of playing roulette. And it's kind of a conventional capitalist dynamic. Right. You know, and I think there are important things to think about in the shift to a service economy, right? I think that people inspired by Brenner who've taken his work sort of in new directions, you know, like Aaron Beninov or Jason Smith, who've written, I think, really useful stuff on the service economy. These these authors are right to point out that the service sector is less amenable to productive investment than 
manufacturing is, right? So you sort of, you would expect that an economy with a big manufacturing sector will see sort of high rates of economy-wide growth because there are all kinds of things you can do to make the factory process more effective. It's much less true about, you know, haircutting or childcare or all these service things. And so I think the idea that there's something epical about the shift from manufacturing employment to service employment, and that part of that epical shift will be, you know, lower rates of growth, I think is still like a really important point for people to continue to think about. Because the shift from capital-intensive sectors to labor-intensive sectors. Right. And that connects to our conversation in the first episode where we said that Jay Powell was particularly concerned about labor-intensive sectors like the services because those are the places where labor costs are a high part of total costs. And so part of that shift is showing up in Fed policy now. But then I think it's strange to, especially strange for Marxists, to sort of take our eye off of the employment relationship underlying the service sector in order to focus on a kind of uh, smoke and mirrors that's a pure product of financial markets. I think it's very rare for any monetary or financial thing to be divorced from these other social relations. And it's, it's been a little bit dismaying to see Marxists treat them as if they were. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast that helps us understand the past so we can organize for a better future. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the Dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Afterlife, a collective history of loss and redemption in pandemic America, edited by Ray Lynn Barnes, Carrie Lee Merritt, and Yohuru Williams. Afterlife is a collective history of how Americans experienced, navigated, commemorated, and ignored mass death and loss during the global COVID-19 pandemic, mass uprisings for racial justice, and the January 6th insurrection. Inspired by the writers who documented American life for the Works Progress Administration, the editors asked contemporary historians and legal experts to focus on the parallels, convergences, and differences between the exceptional long 2020 and earlier eras in U.S. history. As Sarah Jaffe puts it, in this moment, when plague reality continues to underscore how undercared for we all are, Reading Afterlife has been a bomb. Afterlife, out now from Haymarket Books and available on haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. You write, quote, This is a story about overcapacity leading to weak investment, but it is important to note a few differences from the usual long downturn narrative. This story is sector-specific, rather than covering all lines of global manufacturing, and its timeline is more cyclical than secular. Capacity utilization was high in the 1990s, and there are signs that investment is now picking up again. The object of the implied critique is the chaotic alternation between moments of over and under capacity related to the private control of investment and the distribution of income under capitalism, rather than the monotonic process of, quote, the relentless buildup of overcapacity. The upshot of all this is this is a problem not of the, quote, abstract perspective of capital's laws of motion, but rather, you write, a problem of of contingent history and and politics. What's your critique of a certain style 
of Marxist analysis that emphasizes analysis at the highest level of abstraction. I'm preparing now for for a series of interviews on on Gramsci and Stuart Hall, and it reminds me of Stuart Hall's Gramscian critique of the sorts of frameworks that tend toward a sort of straitjacketed economism and the necessity instead of making conjunctural analyses that take emergent forms of politics of the balance of power seriously. Right. So I think the objection that uh, you know that I share with people like Gramsci or Stuart Hall is to a Marxism with guarantees, right? I think there's a certain way of reading Marx which leads people to think that he essentially proved that capitalism will decline and that it'll decline for these reasons. And even if it doesn't happen exactly when we think it happens, everything that happens along the way is just a kind of road bump on the road to this final appointed place where we knew it was going to get in the end, right? Um, And I think there are a number of problems with that on sort of different levels. One is it doesn't really strike me as particularly scientific. You know, I became interested in Marxism and historical materialism because I wanted to understand the world. And it strikes me that uh, in attempting to do that, we should see Marxism more as a method than as a set of conclusions. Instead of trying to find evidence for things we already think, we should actually welcome or even prioritize challenges, puzzles, things that seem like we don't understand them because that's actually probably the most important stuff to understand. There's a second problem, which I alluded to before, which is I think there's a kind of consolation prize to assuming, you know, the capitalism has laws of motion and that those laws of motion mean that it's doomed. Obviously, the last, you know, 50 years have been a huge defeat for the left on a global scale. And I think it's very understandable that people embrace a a view now that even if the workers won't be the grave diggers of capitalism, capitalism will continue to undermine itself. That's an it's a consoling thought because the alternative uh, is really terrifying, right? Which is just a kind of you know permanence of all these things we don't like about capitalism, whether that's absolute immiseration of, of billions of people or just the fact that even in a rich country like the United States, most people have to take orders, have to use their creative human capacities to do things, not even to serve their boss necessarily, but to serve you know an abstract process of increasing value. There are all these terrible things that are true about capitalism, and imagining that they can go on forever is is really, really upsetting. Um, But I think, you know, uh, if we want to be kind of fearless and ruthless in our critique, we need to uh, avoid consolations of all kinds. And then the third one is really more of a a political strategy and question, and that maybe connects to, you know, Gramsci and Hall, which is we're living through a moment of completely unpredicted and I think still kind of weird uh, mass interest in the way the economy works, right? So people listen to supply chain podcasts. You know, uh, I was at a a taping of the Bloomberg Odd Lots podcast, which had like an overflow capacity of people just lining up to get into a podcast about supply chains. It was like a rock concert or something. It's a very strange thing that no one predicted. The mania for Adam Tooze, which has landed him on the cover of several different magazines. And so I think, okay, what are the opportunities for Marxists and socialists in this moment where for a very, you know, strange reason and perhaps only for a moment, there's a mass interest in the concrete ways the economy works. I think it's clear that we need to try to uh, enter into this conversation, both in order to learn for ourselves about how the economy works, because it's extremely complicated, almost impossible to understand, but also because this is an opportunity to show people that all these seemingly little stories, right, the ones that happen closer to the ground than the falling rate of profit, you know, or the long downturn, you can find a road from all of these little stories about supply constraints, I think, to tell people 
people that there's just, you know, a basic problem with capitalism, which is that investment is unplanned, that investment happens because of profit expectations. And the result is that we often won't have the kind of capacity we want or need when and where we need it. And I think if we just like dismiss all this sort of specific stuff as noise on top of the signal of the falling rate of profit, we miss a really rare opportunity to bring people who wouldn't be leftists into a critical perspective about the fact that, you know, investment is privately controlled and carried out in search of profit. Yeah. And housing is a real case in point here because capitalism can induce private builders to build enough, period, right now, um, and particularly not in a high interest rate environment. And even when builders are responding to market signals and building at a fast clip, they're not building for the lowest segments of the market who are simply never going to be able to pay enough to make it worth capitalists' money. Right. In good, in good times and bad, there's going to be some percent of the population, which I think is actually quite large, for whom it simply doesn't pay to build housing. And you can maybe think about the subprime lending crisis as a sort of, you know, a capitalist non-solution, which in this case, I would actually say literally papers over a deeper contradiction, which is that people can't afford housing. The capitalist solution, instead of building social housing, was to make loans to people without incomes. And there you get a bubble, not because we're really building more houses than people need, but we're building more houses than people can afford. And that's a problem about income distribution and a problem about social control of investment. Right. Which is the process that Kinga Yamada-Taylor writes about that she describes as, as predatory inclusion. Exactly. And this is somewhere where there just, you know, there is no shortcut. Um, and so I think because our position here is so strong, we actually have an opportunity at least to demonstrate to people intellectually that capitalism is not going to meet these basic needs that people have. Of course, you know, I'm not so naive as to think that you know, policy in a capitalist society is just a debating tournament. Uh, I think we can win a lot of arguments without things ever changing because, you know, there is not at the present a kind of collective power either by workers or by other, you know, renters, debtors, other people with these kind of interests. But we are people who sit around and like write and talk about things. And so, you know, if we're talking within this sort of specific field of intellectual contention, I think that, you know, we have a strong case and we shouldn't miss the opportunity by ignoring the details. Yeah. And I also believe that given the prevailing balance of power in most so-called blue states, that socialists and people on the left more generally can play quite a decisive role, for example, as we're trying to do in Rhode Island, dramatically expand the public sector's role in the production of housing. It is possible. We can move beyond the debate over whether raising interest rates now is progressive or reactionary. The two of us agree that it's bad. So, can we examine what it means that capitalism has indeed seemed to come to rely on ultra-low interest rates and direct subsidies via unconventional monetary policies to avoid the sort of deep crises that have been sort of the specter-haunting capitalism since the 2008 crash? In, in 2018, the Fed tried to gently raise interest rates, and they immediately backtracked because the stock market freaked out. Brenner argues that this heralds a moment when, quote, money-making has been delinked from profitable production, and, quote, predation has become a precondition for production. Is this a new and notable feature in the history of capitalism? Because on the one hand, as I discussed with Evgeny Morosov, it's clear that capitalists relying on politics and the state to achieve the desirable conditions for the accumulation of capital— that that is pretty fundamental to how capitalism has always operated. But 
the very fact that low or zero interest rates aren't enough to stimulate the economy anymore, does that signify that since 2008, something new is going on? If the new thing isn't politics, is it a new form of politics? Right. So I think Brenner is right that there's something new and noteworthy happening. Uh, And I think if Jay Powell were here, he would tell you, as he said in public in the past, that the Fed in 2020 crossed a number of, quote, red lines, right? The Fed did things it had never done before, some things that it had hesitated to do even in 2008. And of course, if you go back and do the history of 2008, you'll see that, you know, there were also innovations in the Fed response there. So I think the scope of the Fed's um, guarantees to the economy now are kind of breathtaking. Maybe just to backtrack for a second, the original purpose of the Federal Reserve, you know, when it was created uh, in 1913, was just to lend in times of need to commercial banks, which were members of the Federal Reserve System, right? So not even to all commercial banks, much less what we might call non-bank financial intermediaries or the shadow banking system, right? So, uh, you know, a hedge fund or something, um, which is like not regulated as part of the banking system. And so over time, but then I think especially dramatically in recent decades, the Fed has broadened its guarantees, not just to the entire financial sector, but also, as we saw in 2020, to short-term borrowing by non-financial corporations. So, you know, no, no disagreement from me there about the new role of the Fed. I do think there's this complicated question about what the Fed is doing with that power and who they're doing it for. I think it's too simple to just see them as serving the narrow interests of immediate groups of capitalists. March 2020, when the Fed crossed a lot of these quote-unquote red lines, um, when you read the reporting you know, in places like the Wall Street Journal, you see that there were plenty of people within the Fed who were uh, nervous about what they were doing and even some people who dissented from it. So you know, it's, it's very possible that in a less genuinely exigent circumstances, the outcome would have been different. We just don't know that. Um, and the second thing is that the Fed is now tightening money, right? So the Fed has this power over the entire economy, which we've seen they're willing to use in certain moments of crisis, you know, to provide a kind of blanket guarantee of liquidity to the entire financial and non-financial economy. Uh, however, the Fed is currently using its power to tighten financial conditions, and it's an experiment now to see how much they can tighten without breaking something in the financial system, which is um, which is unstable. I think that there are some good reasons for thinking the financial system now is less unstable than it was in 2007, but there's no question that it's a, a labyrinthine, poorly regulated financial system, which relies to an incredible extent on short-term borrowing. And so there are fragilities in the system. And, you know, some people take the position that the system is robust enough that nothing's going to break. Um, and I just, you know, in terms of intellectual honesty here, I just have to say we don't know. Um, and it's going to be really interesting to find out. And it's absolutely true that any kind of Fed intervention is always politically controversial. And this is something where, where Brenner is correct, I think, to point to a novel uh, conjuncture in which it might be possible. In fact, we can be fairly certain that within the next five or 10 years, it will happen that in order to save the entire economy, the Fed needs to undertake rescue programs, which will be politically controversial and will be more controversial without COVID than they were under COVID. I would put money on that prediction. And he makes a sort of related argument that Fed policy has created a moral hazard that encourages increasingly risky financial behavior, which in turn triggers more crises and thus then requires yet more intervention and and more bailouts. What what do you make of that argument? Well, it's funny because, you know, moral hazard is is basically a conservative idea. 
you know, including the very idea of asset price inflation, which is one that really kind of emerged from conservative critics and monetarists and Austrians, you know, who are really worried about the consequences of easy money, which they hate. But that doesn't mean that they're wrong. Um, you know, conservatives have been right about certain things. However, it's just another point where I would really just, I would love to see more specific, concrete, you know, discussions of what kind of risk-taking have been encouraged and why we expect them to be unsustainable. You know, the same way that before the 2008 crash, as early as 2005, there were really smart people on the left who were watching financial markets pointing to subprime and saying, like, here's the place where it's going to happen. There may be places like that now, but on a lot of other measures, uh, like looking at corporate and household balance sheets, there actually have been, I think, successful attempts to to reduce the risk in the system. And actually, like mortgage lending is a great example here, right? You actually don't have people getting mortgages now without incomes, which is a good thing from a financial stability perspective, but a bad thing from the perspective of poor people getting housing. And there are like no adjustable rate mortgages left. Right. So I think like on the one hand, there's a, there's a kind of baseline plausibility to the moral hazard story that we should take seriously. On the other hand, I don't think it's true that the riskiness and fragility of the system just goes up every day. You know, there have been like different push and pull things and it's it's worth, you know, trying to grapple with those things, even if we're never going to be able to predict the future. Right. Um, Dodd-Frank by no means expropriated Wall Street, but it did happen and did have consequences for systemic risk. Right. And I, I think, again, you know, if you think that the Fed is an institution with relative autonomy, for various reasons, the autonomy is both undeniably real and sharply limited. And so I think the Fed is like a sort of perfect case study for thinking about relative autonomy. And if you think that it has that amount of autonomy, why wouldn't they try to do things to limit you know, the chance of the system falling apart, especially if it saves them from having to do these bailouts, which, again, if you read the reporting about this, they're not happy about having to do it. They would much rather Congress do something about it. They would much rather the crisis not happen. They don't love having the firefighter role, even if they know that they have to play it. But of course, just because they want to do something like promote financial stability doesn't mean they'll be successful in it. So, you know, the sort of the general Marxist state theory approach I would I would present is that the Fed has a series of sometimes contradictory imperatives, right? It has the imperative of uh, creating enough economic growth that the system appears dynamic without creating too much that you have full employment, right? That's one imperative. It has an imperative of ensuring the proper working of financial markets where that's understood to mean protecting people who own financial assets and even allowing those assets to appreciate. And then it has an imperative to, you know, try to avoid the worst excesses of financial instability. And sometimes those goals point in one direction. Sometimes they come into conflict. Another left critique of expansionary and unconventional Fed policy is that their intervention in the market caused a stock market boom, something we discussed, that has in turn driven runaway inequality. As Brenner writes, such a boom, quote, was responsible for putting $7.1 trillion of wealth in the hands of equity investors. He continues, quote, between the 18th of March 2020 and the 4th of June 2020, the wealth of U.S. billionaires increased by $565 billion, with Jeff Bezos's wealth alone increasing by $34.6 billion, or 31%. And one solution would be doesn't matter, just tax off the wealth after it's created, which would be better than not doing so, but also seems like an insufficient sort of Matt Iglesias type answer. In addition to being politically unthinkable. <laughs> yeah, unthinkable, given how much wealth they control in the first place. Um, obviously, we can stipulate that this wealth, concentration of wealth is a total obscenity. But what's your take on the relationship between Fed policy and and the increasing amount of wealth controlled by the super rich to asset owners in general, and in particular, to people who own 
a lot of assets. If monetary policy hasn't been inflating Bezos's net worth, what has been? Yeah, so this is another area where I feel like I've become, you know, despite all of my inclinations, a little bit of a positivist. You know, I think we need to talk about what we what we mean. And so in the Brenner quote that you just read, he, he's saying that actually inequality is increasing. But the evidence he cites are just absolute numbers, right? So-and-so made this many, you know, billion dollars. You would actually have to show that the share of wealth controlled by the top 1% or the top 10% increased dramatically in the last, you know, two years or five years. The United States is a grotesquely unequal society where a very small number of people control most of the wealth. But that their share of the wealth, whether you're looking at the one or top, the top one percent or top ten percent, has not really changed very much since 2008. And the uh, the share of wealth owned by the bottom 50 percent has increased slightly over that period. Of course, you know you're talking about the bottom 50 percent going from one percent of wealth to three percent of wealth or something. Uh, you know, a completely. I mean, you can't even call it an insufficient solution. It's not a solution at all. So that's true. I think my my question there for you know someone like Brenner would be. What strikes you as particularly financial about this? Because if you think about, you know, the golden age of capitalism, a period when you had an investment boom or something, over the course of a fixed investment boom in an auto factory, most of the profits produced from that were going to go to people who owned factories, right? It's never been the case that the, the fruits of a boom are equally distributed. And it's not clear to me at all that there's something special about financialization that makes that problem worse than the general fact that under capitalism, the benefits of expansion are are not distributed equally. Then, then what does account for the rich being so much richer for the creation of this class of sort of super billionaires who control just like orders of magnitude more wealth than their rich, super rich predecessors in prior eras? There's a number of sort of fairly banal but important, you know, policy explanations like things that have happened with taxation, corporate concentration is important, right, in terms of increasing profit margins. There have been there was a change in the regulations around stock buybacks uh, in 1982, which made it possible for corporations to spend all this money to pump up the prices of their of their shares. And of course, there's the thing we've talked about a lot, which is the complete disappearance of any working class capacity for shifting the distribution of wealth, either at the level of production, you know, in terms of collective bargaining or through the political system. Through taxation, either through pre-distribution or, or through redistribution. And I can, I think you can actually, you can turn the same point around, actually. I think a lot of liberals uh, have this idea that if we do supply-side liberalism and we build a lot of electrical vehicle factories, that that will somehow be a solution to these problems that we've seen under neoliberalism and a return to the golden age. But by the same token, I think that like just, you know, building electric vehicle factories instead of like doing finance could just as easily reproduce the kind of inequality we've seen because what if these electrical vehicle factories, you know, don't have unions? Like what if they're run by bosses who like are cutting costs to increase returns to shareholders? I mean, the railroads are another great example of that, right? Like what could be more of a classic old capitalism fixed investment thing than the railroads, right? And yet we've seen that, you know, not in contrast to financialization, but in conjunction with financialization and shareholder control of the railroad companies, you see these very, very old fashioned forms of exploitation like speed up on the rails. And so I think, you know, if, if I've delivered a number of questions or challenges to, to some people on the Marxist left, the question I would want supply side liberals to ask is, why do you assume that a kind of reindustrialization or industrial policy will address these other problems without a broader shift in power between groups of people in society? Or relatedly, as Theo Francos argues, we can let the market build electric personal vehicles or we could harness the power of the state to build electric buses. 
Right. And I mean, that's another connection to the asset question. And thinking about class in terms of asset ownership becomes a useful lens when you read the analysis of the Inflation Reduction Act that Thea and some of her colleagues wrote, which points out that, you know, the benefits go to homeowners instead of renters. They go to people who own or might own cars instead of people who ride buses. And so that's, you know, it's sort of closer to the ground than looking at the S&P 500. Uh, but it is true that we sort of hand out these benefits in ways that benefit people who own certain kinds of assets rather than people who rent, you know, or who use public transportation. So I think that the asset lens can be very, very useful and fruitful. I just would stop short of seeing that as a, a completely new era in the history of capitalism when, in fact, I think of one of the axioms of Marxism that class is determined by what people own and what people own determines what they get and how they get it. You know, nothing about that seems particularly new to me. That question of insufficient productive capacity that we've discussed throughout the interview brings us to the issue of what sort of recovery we got after the 2008 crash and how capital and labor were allocated over the decade leading up to the pandemic. For one, as we've discussed, there certainly wasn't investment in housing production and certainly not in public housing construction, something that very clearly set us up for today's housing crisis. Yeah, it's a good question because I think if we want to understand the sort of the real basis for some of the views that I've been critiquing here, either either the view that capitalism has this sort of like long-run loss of dynamism or the view that, you know, low interest rates have been, you know, either completely useless or worse. It is important to think about the experience of, you know, the post-2008 economy, which was one in which we got a historically unprecedented low interest rate environment and very, very little uh, investment into things, you know, that would be useful either by the private sector or by the public sector. So I think everyone on the left and even the center left should should agree, if they're being honest, that there was a huge wasted opportunity with the, the 10 years of, of near zero interest rates to build much of anything that would be useful to people in the future. And so I think that that created this mood, you know, among a lot of people, which is completely understandable, that we didn't really get anything from these low interest rates. Um, it was kind of a lost decade, which is framed the way a lot of people think about it. And then materially, it's helped create, you know, some of the supply constraints that were evident as a result of the unexpectedly strong demand during the pandemic. The interesting question is to what extent that decade plus of, of slow economic growth and lagging employment indicated, you know, a sort of reassertion of a long-term decline in the history of capitalism or was the result of, you know, a just really bad shock to aggregate demand that took a long time to heal. And I think sometimes when people are thinking about this, the demand solution or the demand explanation sounds like kind of reformist or or liberal because it's not focused on the rate of profit. But I think demand and the idea that an economy needs demand to grow strongly is actually sort of a more radical and unsettling proposition than people realize, precisely because once you start to uh, increase demand, you know, and test the limits, you do start to run into inflation in certain sectors, right? Even if you have a lot of economic slack, a lot of unemployment, a lot of overcapacity in certain places, a growth in demand will at some point, even before full employment, start to lead to uh, pressures on prices in certain sectors. And so actually, I think, you know, the idea that there could be demand-led growth is not necessarily a recipe for class collaboration, you know, or compromise. It actually could be a way of exploring where the real conflicts are that would need to be solved if we were even to move closer to something like full employment. It seems as though you're saying that it, that it is not incorrect to think that things that are bizarre, interesting, novel are going on 
with capitalism right now or over the last 10 years? Is, is one way to look at it, perhaps, is that there, there's always something new going on in capitalism, particularly in terms of the uneven expansion and development of the world system as certain thresholds are reached, the system is fundamentally altered? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because it brings up a, an aspect of the world historical framing that I don't think we've talked about explicitly, which is the persistent strength of the dollar as the central reserve currency in the world and really as a kind of de facto world money. You know, basically, ever since August 1971, when uh, Richard Nixon closed the gold window and stopped redeeming dollars for a fixed amount of gold, uh, ever since that moment, Marxists have been confidently predicting a sort of end to American international hegemony, the very least an end to dollar hegemony. It may be that there's still going to be a big crisis of of the dollar, you know, and that the the U.S. budget deficits and, and a trade deficit will ultimately undermine its currency in the world. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's likely, but I would say that even if you believe that still could happen, there were 50 years when Marxists thought it would happen and it didn't happen. And I think that should alert us to the fact that there's something going on with finance, something going on with the dollar. The open question now, and I, I do genuinely see it as an open question now, is whether financialization will continue to be a source of strength for American capitalism in light of this trend towards underinvestment, which seems pretty clearly to be linked to a certain form of shareholder control over the investment decision. Yeah, something I discussed with Aziz Rana and Asla Bali a while back on the show is is that during the Cold War, the U.S. not only exercised global hegemony through through military dominance and intervention, which, of course, they did a ton of, but but also through the provision of certain goods and services. As as always, both on the domestic and global level, domination is secured through some kind of combination of coercion and consent. But now, all we have is overwhelming military power, overwhelming military power whose whose limits have been exposed multiple times in really consequential and dramatic ways in the last two decades. That military power plus dollar hegemony, dollar hegemony is also testing its limits with the sort of complex and extensive sanctions regimes put in place after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, certainly. And I think, you know, one way to think about the the material basis for the hegemony that the U.S. exercised during the Cold War is that the U.S. successfully guided countries like especially Japan and West Germany onto a path of export-led growth. Uh, and the U.S. was able to promote this model of export-led growth, which was later imitated in certain ways by countries like South Korea and then later by China. And so, you know, that's a sort of long arc, which we can also think about as, if not ending now, certainly facing a sort of crisis, I think. So that's one aspect of the Cold War system we're seeing reach an impasse. Another one is the idea of a close agreement and uh, alliance, both economic and military, between different Western capitalist countries, right? So during the Cold War, because of the Soviet Union and because of the strength that the U.S. had to basically dictate the terms of reconstruction in countries like Japan uh, and in Western Europe, there was a sort of alliance between different advanced capitalist states in contrast to the kind of inter-imperial rivalry that had been very characteristic of the capitalist world system, you know, say between 1814 and 1930. What's interesting now is, you know, I wouldn't want to overstate this because we're just seeing the earliest signs of it, but you do see real differences between Germany and the United States uh, over relations with Russia and with China, right, with, uh, I think, large sections of the German business community and, and political elite favoring uh, less of a hawkish position uh, 
with regards to both of those countries. And you could also throw China into the mix there too, right? Where for a, for a moment in the 90s and 2000s and maybe even 2010s, it seemed that there was going to be no inter-imperial rivalry between China uh, and the United States, but that they'd actually come to some kind of you know, Kautskyite, ultra-imperialist condominium where they were sort of both serve each other's interests. And again, you know, we don't want to exaggerate the degree to which there is a conflict, especially if we want to avoid it becoming worse in the future. But I think it's become much more uh, plausible to think about a kind of inter-imperial conflict between the U.S. and China as capitalist countries. And that's also a real move away from the Cold War system. And, you know, perhaps uh, if you're willing to strain the historical imagination, something more like the 1870 to 1914 period. Do you think that American dollar hegemony is at risk now that it's being exploited to the hilt? Or is that engaging in a sort of left-wing wishful thinking about the hubris of American power? I mean, this is another place where I guess I'm, you know, going to have to give a hostage to fortune. But I will, you know, take a position and say that I I don't think American dollar hegemony is in any real danger. Uh, I think that We've seen, you know, over the last two years that almost everything that happens in the world just tends to strengthen, you know, the dollar as a as a place where people seek to store their money in, in dangerous times or as a place where they sort of look for a, a yardstick of value, a stable yardstick of value, even in times that don't have a crisis. And I think, you know, there's like a sort of optical illusion here where a lot of unrest in the world can seem like it must have implications for American hegemony, especially given the, you know, the clearly dilapidated state of much of the American government and economy. But the unrest in the world also makes other places less secure and drives some of that demand for safety, for which I think the U.S. Treasury still is uh, the premier vehicle. I mean, one problem for much of the world with dollar hegemony at a moment of the Federal Reserve raising interest rates is that sucks up investment from all over the world. And the Fed's interest rates are today already pushing indebted poor countries into a debt crisis, something that, of course, played out to terrible effect after the Volcker shock. Why is it that raising U.S. interest rates in the U.S. creates such a calamitous situation for poor indebted countries? And then what was it that happened? in the 1980s in the wake of the Volcker shock? And what do you see by comparison playing out today? Right. So the problems for for poor countries is sort of happening on a number of levels. It's a little bit of a perfect storm because on the one hand, in many cases, they're facing rising costs for essential things that they're importing, right? So the same kind of food and energy price developments, which have helped to drive inflation in the United States, have had, a, in some cases, an even more dramatic effect in countries which have less money to spend on imports and which also maybe produce less of their fuel domestically than a country like the United States does. At the same time, if these countries make their foreign exchange by selling services like tourism, that's also something that's been hard hit in the last two years. And at the same time that's happening, the increase in U.S. interest rates, right, that's been carried out by the Federal Reserve means that unless they raise their interest rates to be competitive with the U.S. rates, money will flow out of their economies, their financial systems into the U.S. seeking a higher rate of return. So there's a kind of coerced amplification effect of these interest rate increases, which will then, you know, have a a contractionary effect on the domestic economy of the poorer country. And then a second thing that's happening is that 
these countries have borrowed a lot of money, and especially if they borrowed on adjustable rate terms or they borrowed uh, in, in short-term markets, the cost of servicing their debt are going to surge at the very time that their economies are contracting, right? Uh, and that the costs of their necessary imports are going up. So it sort of gets worse on every front uh, as the cost of the debt becomes expensive and the economy contracts with the, you know, with the potential result that the the relationship of the cost of debt service to the entire national income becomes just completely untenable. And that's exactly what happened globally after the Volcker shock in 1979, reaching a kind of climax in 1982 with a debt crisis that really detonated in, in Mexico uh, and was was centered in Latin America, but also ended up having pretty significant effects um, in sub-Saharan Africa and many other places. And again, what happened there was that these were countries that had borrowed a lot of money and the Volcker shock in the case of Mexico in particular, reduced global demand for oil, which was Mexico's major export, which meant they weren't getting this inflow of money from selling oil at the same time that the high interest rates meant that Mexico's debt service was becoming much more expensive. And so you had the same kind of thing where, you know, both parts of the fraction are moving in the wrong direction with the result that the entire U.S. financial system, the commercial banking system, was almost brought down and would have been without a bailout managed by the Fed and the Treasury Department. And, you know, maybe this is worth saying because I think in some of the other things I've said uh, on this interview, people might think I'm an apologist for bailouts in general. And I'll say that, you know, with this, uh, the response to the Latin American debt crisis in the 80s, the people who were bailed out were just the lenders, just the American commercial bankers. And Latin America suffered, you know, basically a decade of economic stagnation from which they've never recovered in terms of industrialization. And so, you know, there's a clear uh, example, if you want one, of a system in which, you know, the risk is pushed off entirely onto the most vulnerable people, people who, you know, don't even really have any vote even indirectly for what the Federal Reserve is doing, while, you know, people like Walter Riston of Citibank, who had lent all this money to, you know, the third world, even when people warned it was a bad idea, got off the hook. We're always having these discussions about how the American left sitting here in the belly of the beast has a duty to be internationalist at at a moment when the left feels in many ways less internationalist than ever before. And it's a duty, I think, that's both ethical and strategic in various ways. What might that sort of internationalism look like? In this context, we're discussing of rising Federal Reserve interest rates driving the global South into debt crisis. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And, you know, in some ways, I think discussions about what the left should do are challenging because (laughs) on the one hand, I think it is important that we take a position about what the Fed is doing, right, Uh, and have both a clear analysis for ourselves and sort of a, a public agitational stance. On the other hand, we shouldn't be any, under any illusions that we are in a position to set policies. Yeah, these tools are extremely out of reach for the present day left because it was saved for a few weeks in 2020. We have not been able to imagine a path to the presidency, to put it mildly. And even a president has only limited control over what the Federal Reserve you know, can do. In 1951, in the middle of like an actual shooting war with, you know, Americans being killed by Chinese people in Korea, the Federal Reserve basically entered into an open and public conflict with Harry Truman about, you know, its desire to raise interest rates. So even even if we had a president, Bernie Sanders, the Fed would be relatively autonomous from the presidency. And so the, the challenges are just immense, immense, immense. But even with that said, I think that there is a sort of public stance we should take, which is that, you know, the Federal Reserve should have to answer questions about the effects of what they're doing on the rest of the world. At every press conference, you know, that they have, Federal Reserve officials should be reminded of what's going on, asked to explain what they're doing, and just reminded of this fact. You know, we should talk about that. 
But then there might also be an argument, you know, for focusing not on trying to change Fed policy, which we don't really have a very direct way to do, but basically of broadening our lens and and seeking to, in terms of the intellectual sphere, you know, there shouldn't be pieces about the left view on inflation that never mention the entire rest of the world. And such pieces are still written, you know, and then maybe more concretely, like we need to be looking to ally groups uh, to, you know, if, if, if anything, just to get a clearer picture of what's going on, the way that you know, the class structure in another society is responding to these decisions being made in the U.S. And, you know, I guess speaking as much for myself as for anyone else, there's a lot of work we need to do just to educate ourselves there uh, before we even start to think about a strategic response. So is one way that the left could think about monetary politics something along the lines of what Melinda Cooper suggested in a recent essay, that that public sector unionization and their struggles and strikes that result in more and more progressive spending, that, that these might be an example of monetary policy from below. Can we think about labor struggle and public sector unionism as a left-wing intervention into monetary policy? I think absolutely. And I think it's, you know, already the case that organizations like FedUp had an impact on Federal Reserve policy. So I think activism has already played a role there and there's there's more that could be done. I thought, you know, Cooper's piece, which appeared in, in Phenomenal World, was really interesting. She makes a number of like really interesting points there, including that public sector unions in California have targeted private equity groups, right, to tax their wealth and use it for public services. A major part of the consumer price index, and especially of the sort of non-housing services part of the consumer price index, is healthcare. Right. And so if you want to think about a sort of progressive cost control measure that would have a big impact on the CPI, uh, it would be for the state to use its you know, already significant role in the healthcare industry to bargain down these prices and reduce profits, both for medical services and for pharmaceuticals. And, you know, it's interesting that the one place in our political system where the price control idea kind of broke through was this insulin price cap. And so given that, you know, healthcare is also an important site of unionization struggles, it's very easy to imagine a kind of uh, worker-consumer front built around unionized employees on the one hand and people who are consumers of healthcare paying prices, which are not really in any sense market prices, both demanding that the government fully fund uh, healthcare for everyone while also reducing to a bare minimum the profit margins made by private actors, you know, if not outright nationalizing them, which, you know, is the ultimate step in, in my mind. Let's turn to where things might go from here and where things seem to be heading. Will the Fed achieve a so-called soft landing or will they get stuck somewhere in between, unwilling to raise interest rates high enough to induce a recession and so finding themselves unable to tame inflation while also pulling down growth and so perhaps ending up with a sort of echo of the 70s dynamics? There are obviously so many different possible futures that depend on a dizzying array of forces and wildcard events. But but where do you see things heading? And what factors and balances of forces will decide where things indeed head? I'm going to try to not give an evasive answer because I think it's probably it's probably better to be wrong here just as a yardstick, you know, than to than to say no one can tell the future. So my my reading of the last couple of weeks or or maybe the last month has been that even when the economic data start to suggest to observers outside the Fed that a soft landing just might be possible, the Fed has been at pains to indicate 
that they will not relent or not relent, uh, you know, quickly enough. So as you said, there are a lot of unpredictable things that could happen. And I'll just mention two kinds of events, which I think would push in different directions. Major episode of financial instability, which I think is completely possible or even likely, although we don't know where it'll happen yet. Uh, If that happens, the Fed will probably have to pump the brakes. So something like that, if and when it does happen, will force the Fed to kind of back off perhaps earlier than it would have otherwise liked to do. But there's another set of events that I think would push the Fed to be more hawkish, uh, which is other sort of unforeseen geopolitical world events, which even though the Fed admits they're exogenous, will have an impact on inflation expectations or on prices, and which the Fed is now committed to respond to with hawkishness, again, just to sort of demonstrate that it's serious. And so on the one side of the scale, there's the threat of financial stability, which will you know push them back towards ease. On the other side, there's a possibility of, let's say, oil prices going up again. They're now going down. If they start to go up again, I think that will slow the, the Fed's potential turn to dovishness. So those are my predictions, and we can, we can check back on them in six months or a year and, and see how many of them are wrong. Well, Tim Barker, thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. It was really a, um, a real pleasure to talk with you for so long, and great, great to be here. That was the second and final part of my interview with Tim Barker, who completed a PhD on the history of military Keynesianism in May 2022. He's currently working as a writer and researcher in New York. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, at the best of times, an increase in wages means only a quantitative reduction in the amount of unpaid labor the worker has to supply. This reduction can never go so far as to threaten the system itself. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tammuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Frankos and Ben Maybe. Thanks very much to Anton Yeager for helping out with the prep for this interview. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really and truly does that is you telling other people to listen to the podcast, why you like the podcast, and thus why they might like the podcast too. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.